Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Peter Mann, author of the debut novel, The Torqued Man. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your debut novel, The Torqued Man, how would you describe the novel? Well, I suppose the short version is it's about the double life of an Irish spy in World War II era Berlin. Um, and it's told through dueling perspectives. So it's, you get the ostensibly the, the accounts about the same life of this Irishman, Frank Pike from his German spy handler, uh, as well as a fictionalized third person version from Pike himself, who's adopted the alter ego of the Celtic legendary hero, Finn McCool. Uh, and so these two accounts tell the same life in, in kind of very different, um, conflicting ways. And leaves the reader to wonder, what's he really been up to with his time there in Berlin? And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Torqued Man? Uh, yeah, for me, it was mostly inspiration in history in the sense that uh, my main idea was based on a figure named Frank Ryan. I was reading about the Spanish Civil War, and I came across this guy, Frank Ryan, who um, very similar to Frank Pike in my novel, he was an Irish Republican who went over to Spain to fight in the Civil War against the fascists, mustered a, a, a column of fellow Irish fighters called the Connolly Column, and he ended up getting captured by Italian troops, thrown in Franco's prison for the rest of the war, um, facing life in prison when in 1940, who should come but rescue him, but uh, German military intelligence, the Abwehr, and they basically made him a deal he couldn't refuse, which is we'll get you out of this horrific prison if you come help us with our planned invasion. Excuse me, planned invasion of England. Uh, at that time, Germany was planning on invading England. It never happened. Of course, they got uh, distracted and, and, and turned their attention to the Soviet Union. But uh, long story short, is this guy Frank Ryan ended up making this kind of deal with the devil that he couldn't really say no to. And um, ended up spending kind of the rest of his time uh, on ice in Berlin after a, a series of abortive missions back to Ireland. So, so that idea really animated me in the sense I saw this and I saw what an interesting life, but also just what an interesting kind of question and one that um, there's been some writing about, about Ryan, some historian kind of, you know, pieced together his life in Berlin. But there's still, I think, that something that kind of sparked my imagination, which seemed more uh, suited to, say, a, a fictional imagining um, than a straight historical account, which was, what is a guy like Frank Ryan, this anti-fascist, this Republican socialist, uh, what's he doing, really doing in, in Nazi Berlin, right? How does he account for his time and, and his actions? Um, so that was the initial jumping off point. Great. Well, I know you have a PhD in modern European history, and you teach, and you also have an online comic strip. Um, had you written fiction before, before you wrote your debut novel, The Torque Man? Uh, yeah, you know, I, like, I think a lot of novelists, I had a novel that I, I wrote right before The Torque Man that, uh, just didn't quite make it to the surface. I finished it, uh, it just, uh, you know, didn't quite hit, hit the right marks, open the right gates. And so, uh, there was no cure, but to go back and <laughs> do a new novel. And so I'm very grateful and lucky that this one hit. 
That's great. Well, what was your writing process when you were working on the tort man? Was, um, when you, when you were writing it, was it, um, you know, uh, what were you, you know, did you do an, a, an extensive outline or was it more diving into the narrative? How did that work for you? Uh, you know, it's a bit of a, a, a kind of combination of things. I can't say I'm really a, a full outliner. I think I've tried that a little bit. And if I outline too far ahead, um, it just kind of feels then a, a little dead on the page when I try to think, you know, and I feel like I'm just kind of um, checking the boxes. So that doesn't quite work for me. It's also just hard for me to, I, I can't like sit down and envision how the whole story sequence unfolds. I need to uh, kind of experience the characters in their world, in the moment to, to kind of understand how they're going to react and then what comes out of that. Um, I think that, to, to me at least, I'm not saying you have to do it that way, but I think that kind of helps like characters generate the plot as opposed to, you know, having a pre-established plot that you then have to plug characters in and make them go through that motions. Um, so, uh, but that said, I, I would, I think when I would develop a, a certain kind of sequence of events, like, oh, I could see that, you know, this will happen next. I would kind of think two or three steps ahead. That way I always kind of, I kind of knew where I was going, but only a couple steps ahead. Um, so that seemed to be the kind of right ingredients for, uh, preserving spontaneity, but also feeling like I was working with a, a, a sense of, of at least vague purpose. Sure. And, and I'm curious, how was writing a, a novel different for you than obviously academic writing or creating a comic strip? Uh, good question. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of easy to answer the different from academic writing in the sense that it's uh, much more enjoyable. It's much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I hope that that true, uh, you know, passionate uh, as scholars d don't feel that way either. They don't find it drudgery. But I've I found it took me a PhD to figure out that uh, I'm just not um, thrilled with the idea of spending my life writing scholarship. Um, so I, I switched to fiction writing and all of a sudden I, I felt kind of uncaged and I just really enjoyed the imaginative aspect. I enjoyed the, how humor could play more of a role. It's kind of tough to be other, anything other than a bit wry when you're say writing history or literary criticism. Um, so this really indulged other parts of my personality more and that felt deeply gratifying um, as the comic strip though, the comic strip, I think <clears throat> I, I started doing comics pretty seriously. I'd done some graphic art for a while, but I started doing comics seriously right around the same time I started writing my first novel. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a similar kind of outlet, similar kind of way to, I was writing comics and still most of my comics are still about historical episodes, historical figures, literature, philosophy. So it's still kind of the, the, my same wheelhouse, the same interest that drew me, I think, to history and um, and pursuing a PhD in the first place. But I realized I didn't quite, hadn't quite found the right way to engage with them. And so, doing comics was an again similar to novel writing, um, a way to kind of um, express more of my personality, engage things in a more irreverent way, more madcap way, more and more of a collage way. Right? I could just draw. One of the things I love about the novel is it's just a form that accommodates so much and, and you can draw from such various seemingly unrelated sources and put them together in, in, in such a way that it's in a story that seems coherent. And that's a really satisfying process. That's great. Well, are you working on a new novel now? 
Uh, yeah, I've actually just finished uh, another novel, so it's now kind of in the uh, in the pipeline of, of taking it on submission. And so, fingers crossed, uh, something that y- you can see down the road. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Oh boy, um, gosh, you know, I mean, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said a hundred <laughs> times before, but. Um, still can be heartening to hear. I always, you know, kind of take, um, uh, find it heartening when, uh, w- when I hear other writers, um, say something that sounds both like obviously true and yet like still inspiring. Um, you know, one of those is, is just that it feels like when you're, you know, doing something before, especially if you're working on your, your first novel, haven't been published yet. You feel like you're just kind of working in the dark and doing something like slightly ludicrous. Um, and for me, it was always something I had to kind of keep like semi-secret. Um, like I didn't want to, it, it just, you just feel a little exposed and like, as in this, it's like, well, who's this guy I think he is like working on a novel. Um, and since, and until like it comes out in the world, everyone's like, Hey, you're a novelist. What do you know? Um, <laughs> it, it's, it, it, it can be really daunting. And then, you know, you can be kind of your own worst enemy in terms of, uh, of, of feeling like what business do I have doing this? Um, even though. I feel like once I'm kind of locked in on the page, it's like nothing else I would rather be doing. Um, so I guess my advice would be long winded way of saying this is, uh, I think this probably goes for most people. It certainly is true for me that there is a sense of being on its pendulum, uh, when you're writing, like in terms of like how you feel the work is going. Um, and, and for me, it can vary within a day, but often it's kind of day to day. It certainly varies within a week. Like some days I'll just, be like, oh, I'm really in the zone. Man, this thing is great. This is like the best thing I've ever written. This is this is just self-evidently awesome. And then the very next day, I can have the complete opposite reaction to it and be like, oh my God, what a disaster. <laughs> right. This is what a, what who am I fooling here? This is complete trash. Um, and so I think what I've come to learn is to like not really listen to either of those voices. The the aggrandizing one that says that you know you're you're the next Tolstoy. And the one that thinks that, you know, you're uh, a, a cockroach, um, neither of those is true. So you kind of just like ignore both of those and just keep going to work and know that it's probably somewhere in between. That's that's great advice. Well, I'm curious, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, man, novels or nonfiction. I, I'm in the middle of Elif Bataman's The Idiot and really enjoying it. Uh, from a few years ago, and she's got a, a a new one coming out. I'm excited for. Um, I just got a a book um, mail. Um, oh shoot, I'm going to forget the author's name. It's uh, it's a book that I wish I had known about um, when I was writing uh, the Torque Man because it's from a, a German author, I, I believe, from the 30s. I think his name is Hoffner, um, and it's all about uh, if you if you check out the Torque Man, you'll see. Um, there's a, a contingent of of what are called the Wild in my novel, a German for 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 the, uh, the, the wild boys, the wild ones, and these were these kind of like feral um, gangs of uh, basically children and teenage boys who lived in the the outskirts of Berlin, along the, like the parklands and the forests and the lakes, um, mostly in the Weimar period, but into the Nazi period as well. Um, and, and, and so there were these, these kind of like gangs and street urchins, but they lived kind of this forest life. And anyways, they play a role in my book and I had a lot of fun with them and had drawn on some historical sources. But I just 
uh, came across a novel written in the early 30s by this guy again i think his name is hoffner that i haven't read yet but just got my hands on that i'm very excited to read that's all about all about these these uh, uh forest dwelling street urchins that's great well where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your debut novel the torch man they can find me at petermanbooks.com. It's just my name plus books. And yeah, that should be a pretty one-stop, good one-stop shopping for all things book-related for me. Uh, if you want to see some art or comic strips, excuse me, comic strips, uh, I do uh, comics semi-regularly at the thequixotesyndrome.com, and I have all my art in a clearinghouse on pmania.com. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Peter Mann, author of the debut novel, The Torqued Man. The novel is on sale now, so go grab a copy. And Peter, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. That's great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Torqued Man by Peter Mann, read by John Lee, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. I first met Pike in a Burgos prison in 1940. Despite the bleak setting, I felt almost giddy as I just spent a week in the company of Himmler and would sooner have chosen to become an inmate there than suffer one more minute with that dullard. I still shudder when I recall that trip. I had been assigned to be the Reichsführer's interpreter on his tour of Spain, a demotion that was part of the security officer's attempt to flex its muscles over the obvia. I knew I was in for a miserable week as soon as Himmler boarded the train in San Sebastian. He immediately began complaining that the nitrate deficiencies of the Iberian soil had thrown off his digestion and were interfering with the rhythm of his bowel movements. As if that weren't enough, his wife had neglected to pack his bee pollen supplements, no doubt a malicious act, thereby dooming him to eight days of throat constriction and adenoidal hell. To my horror, this harangue directed at everyone in his retinue, and to which we were obliged to listen attentively and filled the pauses with a natürlich or wie interessant, did not end when we pulled into Atocha, but continued for days. Through the galleries of the Prado, where the Reichsfuhrer insisted on seeing only the German and Dutch old masters, and admired them without breaking stride, he lectured us on the wonders of the Netipot, the earliest Aryan form of medicine, a nasal irrigation system for the warrior caste that led directly to the conquest of the decadent Hittites. It was all to be found in a proper study of the Sanskrit documents. Only when we came to Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights did our group pause, as the phalangists and SS men all marveled at the ingenious tortures of the right panel, cooing like women ogling dresses in a window display. The next day, the mayor of Madrid staged a bullfight exclusively for the Reichsfuhrer. A poor showing. The Corrida hadn't yet recovered from the long siege during the war. The bulls were sluggish, the matadors timid, the regime had to bribe or coerce several hundred civilians to fill the stands and, to ingratiate themselves further with their Nazi guests, had chosen only the blondest, most Aryan representatives of Madrid. Serrano Sunyar, who, as Franco's brother-in-law and Lickspittle-in-chief, had been tasked with showing Himmler around the country, 
presented the Reichsfuhrer with some fragments of a mixing bowl from an archaeological site in Segovia. Hmm, said Himmler, examining the shards. Could be a netipot. You see, Reichsfuhrer, said Serrano Sonia, we Spaniards are descended from the Visigoths. There is good Aryan blood running through our veins, like yours. Himmler scoffed. No Aryan, he said, would make such a grotesque sport out of maiming innocent animals. I hated seeing Spain papered over in swastikas. I state this with absolute sincerity, even while I admit my sympathies had once been with the nationals. I didn't want to see Spain go red. The churches torn down, the women renouncing dresses and dancing for overalls and agit prop, the vineyards collectivized and turned into Stalinist beet farms. In my naivete, I had believed a conservative stand against the excesses of materialism would preserve the soul and, with it, art, which is always in its authentic form, an expression of the soul. But those of us with the true preservationist impulse against the onslaught should have known we had no party to speak for us. I soon learned that Franco's regime, in its obsession with limpieza social and terror of foreign infection, was really only a rebirth of the Inquisition. Perhaps my idea of Spain, the one I saw threatened by the left, had never existed in the first place, and was merely a postcard fantasy from my student days in Salamanca. But, with Franco's victory, it had become clear to me that the Caudillo and his phalangists were of the same, stunted, loathsome issue as the thugs of our own regime. (laughs) 